play on Underdog Fantasy with us and double your first deposit up to $100 with promo code OUTSIDERS. Even with NFL best ball season over, Underdog has other user-friendly game formats to spice up all the games. Try their Battle Royale, a six-round best ball-style draft with simpler chances to win than traditional daily sports sites. Or you could try their Pick'em games, where you can wager on players' chances to go higher or lower than their projected stat line. Even in states where traditional prop betting currently isn't available, Underdog is the fastest-growing fantasy site around. Join the fun over at underdogfantasy.com or download Underdog in the App Store and use promo code OUTSIDERS now to double your first deposit up to $100. Now, Jackson, as always, we've got to start with the Thursday night game, which Amazon finally getting their money's worth in a game that maybe we didn't potentially expect them to. Maybe not. End up. Decent game though. You get you get red haired Andy Dalton. You get the red of the Arizona Cardinals. There's a clash. There's also a clash on the football field. Not bad. Listen, speaking of a certain red headed quarterback, that is exactly where our first take of the night is headed. First take, of course, comes from Ross Tucker of the Ross Tucker Football Show who's got a bit of an interesting one, Jackson. Let's hear from the man himself. The game, 42-34. I mean, think about that compared to the last couple Thursday night games. It started off wild. Andy Dalton had a bomb to Shahid, like a perfect pass on a deep post. There were two defenders down there. Beautiful throw from Andy Dalton, who, this is going to sound weird, but Andy Dalton had one of the best games I've ever seen from a guy that threw three picks and two pick sixes. He really did. I mean, he he had one of the best games I've ever seen from a guy that had three interceptions and two pick sixes. Now, Jackson, where are we putting this one on the meter? Andy Dalton had the best game of a quarterback who threw three picks and two pick sixes. What do I do with that, Gail? <laughs> it... Uh, you cooked me the best meal I've ever had that had shards of glass in it. Like, <laughs> um, that's I like. Technically, he's right. Like, sure, Andy Dalton had a very good game for also having some terrible things happen in the middle of it. Um, but if you're having to add that many qualifiers, I think it's a freezing take. I think that's what it is. Listen. <laughs> Jackson, would you be surprised to learn that Andy Dalton is not the first person to have such a game like this? And by that, I mean, (laughs) I mean, according to Stathead, Andy Dalton is the fourth quarterback to throw at least 350 passing, at least three touchdowns, at least three picks. And at least two pick sixes. Lynn Dickey, Andy Dalton, Philip Rivers, and Drew Brees. That's an eclectic group of names there, Jack. Yeah. He's also, if you really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty, he is the best quarterback to ever throw that accumulated stat line on a Thursday night. 
really want to get into the weeds there. Amazing. But if we break down some of these, first off, all of them are losses. All of them are losses. We, we can't ignore that. I'm going to put it lukewarm because Lynn Dickey, only quarterback to actually take a team to overtime with such a stat line. Apparently those two pick sixes are just insurmountable. But if we're looking at it, Andy Dalton had the second best completion rating behind Lynn Dickey. Had a better touchdown percentage than Lynn Dickey. Had the lowest interception percentage of any of the four quarterbacks. And also, unlike Lynn Dickey, he and Phillip Rivers are the only two quarterbacks to throw four touchdowns instead of three. I'm at least going to give it a lukewarm. I'm going to put it right in the middle because, yeah, it's niche. And I'm not sure Ross had that one in the uh, – I don't think he had Lynn Dickey's, uh, you know, fabled game against the Atlanta Falcons in 1983 in the back of his wheelhouse. But, hey, he wasn't too far off, so I'll give him some kind of credit there. You know, does it not negate the touchdowns you are throwing when you are also throwing touchdowns to the other team? I ask you. It's a very simple question. And he threw two. And he threw two and had a fine game. There's a reason all four of those guys lost the game. It's because the other team has an offense, too, that is actively trying to score points. So when they're scoring points, when you're on offense, that means the other team's going to score a lot of points. You can't win a game by losing. And throwing pick sixes is actively trying to lose. See, here's why it's freezing to me. Here's why I listed it as freezing. Because, like, the take in the words that he said was Andy Dalton, quote, had one of the best games I've ever seen from a guy that had three picks, two pick sixes. But the subtext, sort of the underlying message of that is Andy Dalton played well last night. And I don't think you can say that when Andy Dalton gave 14 points to the other team. If that's the subtext and Andy Dalton just played well, he played okay. He played serviceable. I mean, would you have rather had broken back Jameis Winston out there? I don't well, that's know. That's the thing. Is I, th- I think when you put Andy Dalton in there, you're expecting like a 230-yard, one-touchdown, no-interception game, not a 354-3. and three. Like, that's what you bring Jameis in for. You bring Jameis in for the volatility. Andy's there to, like, ride the middle lane and try to deliver you a victory on the backs of your defense and Alvin Kamara, and that is not what Andy gave you last night. You're making some good points, Jackson. You're starting <laughs> to sway me. Thank you. You're starting to sway me. I'm going to stick it at lukewarm just because of those four guys, I think he probably had the best game up there. But did any of those guys have good games? Whatever. It's, you, you stick it lukewarm, pal. It's your world. That's fine. And listen, that wasn't the only thing to happen on Thursday. No, sir. We had a bit of a doozy of a trade go down with Christian McCaffrey headed to the San Francisco 49ers for as uh, Arjun Manan, I believe, plugged it into the Fit Spielberger chart, the equivalent to a number four overall pick. <laughs> Uh, a 2023 second, a 2023 third, a 2023 fourth, a 2024 fifth. That's Steve Pickens. What I will say, we're not here to talk about the trade and give hot takes about that. 
But we will, on occasion on this show, reward those who did have it right. And Charles Robinson could not have had it more right. Was taking laps all over Twitter circles last night for his takes on Christian McCaffrey. He had originally put out an article earlier this week naming two favorites for the McCaffrey sweepstakes, and that was the Buffalo Bills and the San Francisco 49ers. Now, the 49ers didn't really feel like they were in any realm of contention for this, and they take the guy home. Now, Ian Rapport also adds that the second finalist was the Los Angeles Rams, so maybe the price gets driven up in a bit of an NFC West bidding war. But hey, this is just a quick tip of the cap to Yahoo Sports' Charles Robinson for getting this take right. Hats off to him. I agree, and if there's one thing in hindsight that I would add, if we were looking between the Bills and the 49ers all along, the 49ers in hindsight make much more sense. It's a team that... I mean, throw out history, throw out the fact that the Bills are historically hungry for a Super Bowl. The Bills are in much better position from a roster standpoint than the 49ers are, both with injuries. Yeah, they need maybe some help in the backfield, but the rest of that offense is so explosive. The 49ers had already decimated draft capital in the Trey Lance deal. The 49ers have been close to two Super Bowls and not won one in the past three years, and the quarterbacking future is extremely murky. And like I said, they had already decimated their war chest, so this is them just pushing all the chips to the center, whereas the Bills are still set up pretty well to continue to build and rebuild and contend year in and year out. This 49ers team kind of coming to the end, certainly the end of their rope with Jimmy G. You'd love to think Trey Lance can carry you into the future, but you don't know if he's the guy. So if you're trying to go all in for this year, I mean, this was the move. Now is the time. I wouldn't call it the end of the rope for the Niners. Uh, you know, they've got guys under contract. Their contract situation is much more mut- mutable than the Buffalo Bills, considering you know, Josh Allen's deal starting to kick in next year. They just signed Von Miller to a 6-120 deal which is really like a three-year 60 deal. Uh, but, yeah, they, you know, their defense, a lot of young guys on the defense, but you got to pay a couple guys like Bosa. Uh, you know, with a contract like Trey Lance's, it's a way more mutable situation where you can move the money around. Also, Christian McCaffrey, no dead money on this deal. Uh, which is great for them. They're basically paying them $1 million this year, uh, half of which, because I think Carolina's taken half the contract. Uh, that, that bonus that Carolina gave them really freed up a lot of money. So now they can really work with the guy. They've got him hooked up for, I think, three years, 36 right now. And it's way, it's way more translatable for them to make it work. I will also add that, in four of the five years that Kyle Shanahan has been head coach, they've had a running back finish top 11 in DYAR receiving among running backs. So it feels like the perfect offense and the perfect situation for Kyle Shanahan. But hey, we're not really here to give our takes. 
But we had to address it. We had to throw our hat in the ring here a little. And that'll take us into the bulk of our show, the league-wide take. And after last week's performance against the Philadelphia Eagles, I'm very happy to announce that I think the Cooper Rush-Dak Prescott starting quarterback conversation is officially behind them, which I'm glad it's over. I don't know about you. Pour one out, but also, thank the Lord, let's move on. Dak's the third best TVOA last year. He's the starter. Not just yet, Jackson. We're not moving on quite yet, because if you missed out on a couple quarterback debates, buddy, do I have one for you? In New England, it's zappy hour. It's zappy fever. People up in New England are talking. People in national media are talking. Matt Jones has been made readily available to play as early as Monday night. Bailey Zappi, 2-0, took the Packers to overtime in Lambeau, mind you. The CBS Sports' Pick 6 podcast somehow stumbled into basically doing half of their podcast. A Week 7 betting preview, mind you. Half of their podcast <laughs> on the Jones-Zappi starting debate. And basically, listen, I'm not going to play half a podcast for you, Jackson. He lost his list. <laughs> we can listen to that on our own time. But the crew over at the Pick 6 podcast basically came to this game. Zappi held his own against the Packers, Lions, and Browns, who are admittedly weak defense. But if you leave him in against the Bears, when do you bring Mac back? Are you going to bring him next week? when you head to the Meadowlands against a surprisingly good Jets team? If you leave Zappi in, then he takes you into the bye, maybe, what, 5-0? and Because if you beat the Jets next, if you beat the Bears, then you beat the Jets. All you've got left is the Colts, who are a very beatable team. Now Zappi's on a five-game win streak. Then he's just your starter at that point. And- it's a tough He's, he's played too well. He's put them in somewhat of an unenviable position. But, like, let's be honest, too. If you look at the numbers, each of them through three games this year, yes, pretty much every Zappy stat is better than pretty much every Mac Jones stat. But you have to take it in context of the opponents being faced and sort of what these quarterbacks were each being asked to do in the games they were starting. Mac Jones against the Baltimore Ravens was airing it out in a way that he's never had to before, and that's going to lead to some Mac Jones interceptions, which you... I mean, Mac Jones' whole thing is ball control, uh, and basically through three games this year, it was almost like, okay, year two, Mac made the Pro Bowl last year, Mac does the gritty now, let's let him you know, kind of air it out and take more command of the offense. That's never what Mac Jones was meant to be. Bailey Zappi comes in, and all of a sudden they reel it back in. They say, okay, we are going to be that ball control offense. Okay, we do have Ramondre Stevenson, who's fantastic running the ball. We get a good push up front. Let's just go back to being who we are. Coinciding with a much weaker slate of opponents. I mean, you always, almost beat the Green Bay Packers, who generally are a good team and have underperformed this year. And then the last two weeks, I mean, tip your hat to Bailey Zappi. He's played well, 
but I don't think anybody's really going to be giving you, you know, full-time starter consideration for beating those two opponents. Detroit, Cleveland. You know, those are two of the two of the six worst teams in the league in my estimation. So I think as long as Mac Jones is doing what Mac Jones should be doing, which is essentially exactly what Bailey Zappi's been doing the last two weeks, I mean, he's still the guy. He's a first-round draft pick for a reason. Not only that, but I, I like your point about the fact that they really changed up the offense with Zappi in the sense that there were the whole the whole point of this offseason, the entire storyline of the 2022 Patriots offseason was detailing how there were two offensive coordinators, they were switching the system, uh, there was new terminology in the building, and they ran that offense for three weeks. Mac Jones goes down, they put Brian Hoyer in, and they basically say, hey, let's just run what we've run in New England, what we've run on, what we ran under Josh McDaniel, we ran last year, Mac Jones, uh, more play action, more pre-stamp motion, uh, uh, run heavy offense. And it, it's worked. What I do think is that Mac Jones elevates the ceiling of this team a lot higher than Zappi. I do think that with the emergence of a guy like Tyquan Thornton, there is more to be done downfield. That Zappi's just incapable in terms of his arm strength. With guys getting open now, you know, Matt Jones was throwing those balls to Devontae Parker, who's a 50-50 guy. He's a contested catch guy. Inherently, those balls are going into coverage. The emergence of Tyquan Thornton, however, now allows for a vertical field stretcher. Now allows for a guy who is actually going to get behind a defense. Is going to get behind a cover two if they're running it against New England. It's an extra level of offense that doesn't exist with Zappi. So let's put a stamp on it, Jackson. Their take, keep Zappi in as long as possible and ride him into the bye. Regardless of the win streak that he may or may not put up, you need to give Mac Jones as much rest time as possible for this high angle. Here's the thing. That's two different takes is what that is. Is it let Zappy ride or is it let Mac be 100% healthy? I think you have to trust that Mac is, if not 100% healthy, close to 100% healthy. And on the other hand of the take, like if the take is purely just keep Zappy in as long as he's the hot hand, then that is a blazing hot take. And one that I do not put my stamp of approval on. But if we're just going on our take meter, slide whistle all the way up. I'm going to call it hot. I'm not going to call it blazing. I think there's a sense of rhythm you need to have. in The only reason I'm not calling it blazing is because there is the inkling of the Jones injury. Jones was the one who elected not to get surgery on this high ankle sprain to keep him in. So if he thinks he's able to play, I'll trust him. But I do want him healthy because high ankle sprains are nagging because high ankle sprains cause, you know, are lingering on stat sheets. It takes a while for return to play. As a bit of a side sprinkle, Jackson, this was kind of a throwaway in their pod, so I didn't want to 
presented as a full-on take. They started throwing out uh, the conversation about New England and their playoff on. Currently plus 196 at one book to make the playoffs. And their over-under is eight. CBS Sports host Will Brenton said at one point, heading into week 13 against Buffalo, New England will be eight and three. They're three and three right now. That means they're winning their next five. I won't make you put it on the meter, but what are your thoughts on that one? Is it, I mean, when I sat down and did the Patriots schedule start to finish this year, I had them starting one and three. I had them winning their next six in a row. So it might be a hot take. And, you know, a lot's changed. The zappy thing, the wrinkle being thrown in, not just that they lost three of their first four, but the way they looked and losing some of those games, they've all messed with my mind. But I guess I sort of have to support this take when it's very similar to a take that I didn't realize I was going to be sharing with the internet, but a take that I basically had to start the season nonetheless. Well, then hats off to you for that one, because you at least called the 3-3 three and three run. Let's see how... I did, and I didn't know the Jets were going to be this good, and I believe the Jets are two of those games in between now and the Bills game. So that also throws a wrinkle into it when I probably had the Jets as a five-win team, and they're almost already there. So now I don't know exactly where to sit on that, if they can win both of them. But, you know, they'll come into the Meadowlands. That's right around the corner for me. Maybe I'll just go swing the tide myself and get them to 7-3. and three. Listen, I'll be there myself that Sunday to watch them. It'll be a fun game. Now, speaking of the Patriots, they head up, as I said, on Monday and play Chicago. Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick loves the Chicago Bears, Jack. <laughs> that might be a hot take in itself. But this one comes courtesy of Michael Hurley at WBZ in Boston. A Jackson, I don't know if you can see this tweet. It might be at about three-point font. It was, according to uh, Nesson's Zach Cox, a seven-minute opener to his press conference on the Chicago Bears where he names, by name, 17 different members of the Chicago Bears and lauds specific praise on them. Uh, It goes into uh, Justin Fields as an athlete, calls Darnell Moody a, quote, an outstanding receiver. Uh, You know, says this running game is right there with the Cleveland Browns. I mean, they literally have the exact same amount of yardage. Uh, goes in to talk about a, a hard-to-beat Bears front, uh, corners that are always around the ball, praises their special teams in all facets. Jackson, just the premise of this amount of praise in general, where are you putting it on the meter? So on the meter, I'm going to go lukewarm which might be a surprise, but it's because it's Bill Belichick, and I feel as though anything that comes out of Bill's mouth is in and of itself lukewarm. What I take away from this take is the Chicago Bears are absolutely screwed in this game. Someone who takes the time to be able to give a coherent 
seven minute answer about this awful Chicago Bears team is somebody who's ready, getting ready to absolutely dismantle them in primetime television in what will be the equivalent of a snuff film. And I, if I'm a Chicago fan, I'm not looking forward to that one bit. Listen, I'm going to call it hot again, but I, I'd like to do a bit of an exercise. Jackson, I've gone through every line of this. <laughs> I've gone through this seven-minute rant. Of course you have. And and there listen, there are some things that are subjective, like a you know, like a he he calls Justin Fields a threat every time he touches the ball. It's not a great a threat way to, to what a threat to who <laughs> could be a great take depending on who you're talking about here. There's not a there's not a great way to measure that, or you know. Without specific charting data, there's not a great way to measure uh, Eddie Jackson is always around the ball. But what I will say is that there are some takes buried in here that can be quantified and put up to scrutiny. Let's start out with Darnell Mooney, amazing receiver. His first year in the league, you know, 69th in DYAR, 69th in DVOA. Not doing fantastically there. This year hasn't been much better either. Currently sitting at 64th with a negative 37 DYAR and 63rd with a negative 26.2 DVOA. The rest of this, though, is pretty up there. Says this running game is right where Cleveland is. I mean, they literally have the same amount of yardage. They do, but Cleveland currently but no. has one <laughs> Cleveland currently has one thousand thirty-two yards on one hundred ninety-eight attempts. Chicago Bears have one thousand twenty-four rushing yards on one hundred ninety-seven attempts. He also called them very hard to tackle. Khalil Herbert ninth in broken tackles, fifth in broken tackle rate. David Montgomery, 11th in broken tackles, 8th in broken tackle rate, according to Sports Info Solution. Now, there's a massive difference in DVOA. Cleveland is 4th. Chicago is 22nd. Most of that is derived by touchdown. Cleveland's out scoring them 10-5 to 5 in terms of rushing touchdowns, but Cleveland also has four more fumbles. Belichick, you know, then he says, you know, they can score on any play. Uh, tough to quantify. Anyone can score on any. <laughs> it's also uh, situational, yeah. though, right, Kale? Because if you're getting sacked twice and then running for nine yards on third and 27, that looks great on your rushing totals, but DVOA doesn't really like that. That's kind of what the Bears' offense is to me. Can't be boomer bust. You can't be all or nothing here. It is a little situational, which we will get into. He calls them a good group of tight ends. Cole Komet, despite, you know, many fantasy people not being the biggest fan, considering he didn't see the ball for maybe three weeks, currently sitting in 19th in DYAR, 16th in DVOA. Called him a young, talented offensive line, which uh, they're, they're not really. Uh, no. <laughs> they're not fantastic. I mean, I guess they're young enough. <laughs> they're young, I, promising in the future, but we'll save them for now. They got a good field goal kicker, and they got a good returner. Chicago ranks 
fourth in field goal and extra point DVOA, but they rank 22nd in kick return DVOA, 32nd in punt return DVOA. He said they could change field position on a dime. While they rank fourth worst in offensive field position, defensively, they rank 18th in opponent starting field position. So yeah, even though they are one of the most backed-up teams in the league, their punter is good enough to at least make them league average in defending field position. So I'll give them that. And there's other things you can't, you know, you could quantify, but, you know, can't really translate and show up this year. Basically spends four years, or compliments Eberflus's four years as a defensive coordinator in Indianapolis. Calls the D front hard to block on the front. 22nd in adjusted sack rate. 30th in power success by our numbers. According to ESPN's numbers, 22nd in pass, pass rush win rate. That's always a tongue twister to me. Eighth in run stop win rate. They make a lot of tackles. Can't miss that one. Roquan Smith tied for first in combined tackles. Nicholas Morrow, who we also named, ranks tied for 27th. Again, Eddie Jackson, always around the ball. Let me get some next-gen stats data on that. Let's see how much separation there is on point of catch. Also called him the best defensive team in the second half of games in the league. Right now, Jackson, they're sixth in defensive DVOA in the second half of games. Close it off by saying we need a good week of preparation here to be ready to go on Monday night. Which I think is true. Because you can't have a sleeper game. Can't take the rat poison. Jaskin, right on all that off, I'm going to call it hot. But, I mean, hey. there are nuggets of truth in there. There's maybe some There's maybe some hyperbole. There's maybe some overpraise. But there's some nuggets in there. I don't know. I'm going to unravel everything you just said and boil it down into Bill Belichick says the Bears are good, and again, I'm sticking with lukewarm because I don't think Bill Belichick believes that the Bears are good. I think Bill Belichick is preparing to take the Bears apart, and he doesn't want there to be any bulletin board material, as there always is with Bill Belichick. He will absolutely never say a negative word about one of his opponents, and he just is getting ready to eat the Bears alive. That is my take on this. Listen, when you have a Bad opponent matching up against the New England Patriots. You can almost guarantee Bill Belichick's going to do a tight five on how great they are. It's a, it's an intimidation tactic in a way, even if he doesn't mean it to be. It's like, oh man, Bill Belichick is deep in our tape. He knows a lot about us. He's going to be ready for us. And by the way, we're not anywhere near as good as he says we are. And we, we are about to be put to the test by him on national TV. Yeah, he is holding you to a high standard when you're coming into town. Yeah. Moving on over to Mike Renner of PFF on his little solo show, Talking Ball. Had a viewer question come in that I think you might like, Jackson. Let's take a look. All right, next question here. John Binner on Twitter asked this. Way too early 2022 NFL redraft top 10. This is a man after my heart right here. I live for redrafts, one of my favorite exercises to do. And like I said earlier, 
Jaguars, number one overall pick. You get a redo at this point. There is no one else you're drafting over Sauce Gardner. I'm sorry. You're not drafting anyone else over Sauce Gardner at this point if you were to redraft. And I don't think it's, like, truthfully, not close. That's how good he has been so far this season. Allowing 22.5 yards per game. Allowing 13 of 30 targets this season for 135 yards with seven pass breakups. Leads the NFL with seven pass breakups. He has been as shut down a corner as you'll see in the league so far this season. Not just good for, you know, a rookie, good for any cornerback at any point in time. He's been awesome. Jackson, redraft of the 2022 NFL. Sauce Gardner going one overall. Where are you putting it on the meter? I'm going to go hot. But I like it. It's not like a hot in a sense of, whoa, that's a little too hot for my taste. I I like this take. I think it's uh, it's pretty early for me. It's also not necessarily a case of if you're Jacksonville and you're just rebuilding a defense entirely from scratch, I don't know how much one shutdown corner does for you. I mean, maybe it does a lot. I mean, Sauce Gardner, fantastic, doing a lot for the Jets. The Jets had a good bit more established infrastructure on their defense heading into the season, at least in my estimation, than the Jags did. I think... The Trayvon Walker pick for them is them saying, you know, let's take a swing on somebody who we think can be dominant on the interior and really kind of give our defense an identity. Sauce Gardner, somebody who can come into a defense with other pieces and just completely shut down one team's top receiver and give you just the ultimate weapon in the passing game uh, or a counter weapon in this case. So, you know, on the flip side, he has been the best player in this entire draft by far so far. And, you know, no no offense to the other great corners who have been in this draft too. You know, Derek Stingley, especially the last couple of weeks, has really shined for Houston. Uh, Tariq Woolen coming out of the fourth round and leading not just all rookies, but all DBs with four interceptions so far. I mean, fantastic job there as well. So I like, I like the take, though, because I think Sauce Gardner, clearly the best corner, clearly the best defensive player in this class. I just don't know if he fits what Jacksonville's needs were at the start of the season. Jackson, I'm going to call it a little call. I'm going to call it a bit chilly of a take. If only. Because I think there's a, you know, the biggest key for me is that he says it not close. And if you look at the top 10 picks that were taken in this draft, even the, t- let's, let's just call it top five. We got Trayvon Walker, Aiden Hutchinson, Derek Stingley, Sauce Gardner, Kay- Kayvon Thibodeau. All five defensive players. I'd say you're happy in four of those five situations. I think Detroit is really struggling to try and get Aiden Hutchinson working because He's got three sacks this year, and all of them have come uncovered. He's been a pretty big non-factor. Specific commentators have talked about the fact that Aiden Hutchinson, the number two edge prospect out of college, potentially a number one pick, was really a coin flip for Jackson. Uh, One commentator said he needs to learn pass rush. That's You can't do that when you're an edge rusher. Getting taken number two overall. 
Um, yeah. And that's not just some commentator that said that. That's Jonathan Vilma, who was a great pass rusher and knows what pass rush technique looks like. Now, where I lie at the moment is Stingley is really up there. I, In terms of pure tape that's been put out so far, Sauce looks dominant. And admittedly, he's gone against a pretty decent group of receivers. You take him against Baltimore, who's got Rashad Bateman, Devin Duvernay. You take him against Cleveland, where you're throwing him on reps against Amari Cooper. Throwing him against Cincinnati, where he's getting looks against Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. Pittsburgh, a lot of bodies. Deontay Johnson, George Pickens, Chase Claypool. Miami, you got Waddle and Tyreek Hill. And Green Bay. Green Bay was arguably the worst team receiving-wise he went up against which is where we saw some of his most dominant tape. And mind you, this isn't just a shutdown corner. This is a guy who forced a safety against Teddy Bridgewater off of a corner blitz. Like, this guy can do a little bit of everything, but I don't want to discredit the other two players in this pass. Derek Singley, like you said, has a worse roster behind him. It's pretty easy for Sauce Gardner to do what he can do when he has DJ Reed playing alongside him, and Jordan Whitehead and LaMarcus Joyner are on top of it. Like, that's a really good unit in there. That they've done a great job putting together. And Robert Sala's main focus is he turned around an underperforming squad of secondary men in San Francisco and turned them into a top five defensive pass cover. So I think he's got, like, everything going for him. In terms of raw product, Stengler doesn't have nearly the amount of help. He's got Jalen Petre, Jonathan Owens, and Steven Nelson. You know, it's not it's definitely not as much going his way. But what I love about Stengler is he's doing the same thing. He's going up, he's probably getting year one. And he's had a much worse slate. You know. He got the Colts in a tie. He locked up court in the side. He gave Jordan uh, Cortland Sutton fits. Again, we just talked about Chicago's receiving core. Uh, too much. <laughs> Go up against a Los Angeles team without Keenan Allen, and then you get the win against Jackson before you head into your box. I think the biggest thing for me, and Derek Singley, by the way, uh, Mike had talked about... Uh, you know, his pass coverage numbers, he's only allowed one touchdown. He has seven pass breakups and a pick. Stingley, five uh, five pass breakups and a pick. 15 of 28 allowed, only two more passes than Sauce for 199 yards, which ups his 7.1 yards per target up a bit. Hasn't allowed a touchdown, though. I like him a lot because of his versatility, his ability to... Play press man to really lock in on a guy, follow him around the field, go one-on-one, and also shift into his own and also have, you know, that ability, that knowledge, that skill set to do both. And then, of course, we can't forget about Tariq Will. 12 of 23 allowed, 52.2% completion rating, 161 yards allowed, which is about where Derek Stingley's at in terms of your target, 7.0 in favor of one to Stingley 7.1. 
also has not allowed a touchdown this year. Three pass breakups, four picks. I'm making it chilly because, listen, edge guys aside, I just don't think it's that big of a runaway. I think Sauce is getting a lot more help. I think Sauce is in infrastructure to capitalize on his skill set. And I just think if the other two players were in better situations, they'd be a lot better off. If they had a little bit of help, a little bit of infrastructure, especially on Woolen's end, where Woolen is kind of getting let out to dry by the rest of this defense, I think it'd be a lot closer in the cornerback conversation, let alone in the number one overall conversation. I know this is a very, like, you know, granular, stat-driven show, but isn't Sauce just the guy out of those three corners? Like, isn't that... I, I know we, we say this way too often now, but isn't Sauce just him? And that's why he's... Like, yeah, he's he's marginally better in some of these statistics, especially the yards per target one. That one really stands out to me as Sauce is allowing a full yard and a half less per target than these other corners. And that's where I think he definitely has a slight edge so far on the other two. But... From a personality standpoint, from a ball hawking standpoint, just the way that he owns the bright lights of playing in New York and, and snatches cheese heads and wears them off the field. Like, isn't he just the guy that you want on your team? So from that from that perspective, I maybe it's not a runaway. Maybe these other two corners are also very good football players. But don't you don't you want him? Isn't that the guy you want on your roster? I mean the cheese head seals it, right? And like not only going out and like Basically, Babe Ruth calling your shot, picking number one on your jersey as a rookie, buying it away from another player. But just, you know, everything else, I was spoken in press conferences, uh, the confidence that other players exude about him and, and just how just the effusive praise that gets poured onto this guy. Yeah, that is a very good point. The, the Buffalo Wild Wings commercials, the quotes coming out from him and Brees Hall looking at each other saying, bro, we're so good. I mean, his name? And Derek Stingley, also very good corner name. But when you hear Sauce Gardner, like, aren't you just afraid to throw at that guy? Like, just every possible tangible, intangible, and everything in between is in Sauce Gardner's favor. Speaking of which, I was a little disappointed to find that uh, – all of the stats, by the way, come from Sports Info Solutions, their coverage stats. I was a little disappointed that I had to type a mod gardener, not sauce. Because I feel like it should almost just be like an Ocho Senko at this point, right? That, like, just make the name change. Good. Fully agree. Moving on to the Sharp Angles podcast, part of the Warren Sharp Network, gets into a little bit of another New York team. Post basically broke it down. The New York Giants are bad, which don't think is that hot. They're a 5-1 team with negative DVOA. However, they're going to keep hanging around. It's a lengthy segment. We won't subject you to it, but a couple nuggets from it. They've led the lowest rate of snaps of any winning team this season. They make plays when they need them, but they've not really generally generated huge plays of that nature. They've only had their first interception the last week. Uh, one quote was, we know what the Giants are going to do on the offensive side of the ball. 
give it to Saquon until he makes a play. And their basic point is they're good enough and well-coached enough to hang around. And in terms of their biggest weaknesses, which is basically coming from their lack of corners, which are being hid by, you know, Wink Martindale covers zero blitzes, they're not going to face many more teams that don't have good wide, that have good wide, rather. Seattle's really the last one on their roster. And they still have games against Philadelphia. They've got games against Dallas. But outside of their own division, Minnesota, Minnesota, but outside of their own division, they're really not going to get killed by major defenders. Another big point of their weakness was they battled early downs, but incredible on third downs. And early down performance is more indicative of long-term stability and performance than what you do on third down. So, Jackson, the Giants are going to keep hanging around. Where are you putting it? You know, the take meter gets confusing sometimes. I don't know where to throw this one because this is a take that I absolutely 100% agree with. But is it hot? Is it cold? Is it somewhere in between? Uh, I'm going to say this is a cold take. But I agree with it because I think it's obvious that the Giants are going to hang around because the NFC playoff picture is very weak. And because the Giants still have games left against Jacksonville, Seattle, Houston, Detroit, and Washington twice. And they already have five wins. So I don't think the question that we need to be asking about the Giants is, are they going to hang around? It's A, are they a bona fide playoff team? Like, take a stance on one side of the fence or the other. Are they going to make the playoffs? And two... Are the Giants actually good? Because <laughs> they can even make the playoffs. They can win 10 games. And I don't know if that means they're any good because the NFC is not. Uh, first of all, none of that should really matter when you think about what the preseason expectations for this Giants team were. And especially when judging the success of Brian Dable as a first-year head coach, he's already knocking it out of the park. But that, that all said, they've gotten to this point where they're 5-1. and one, and I don't think we can judge them anymore based on just, you know, will they be around in December? Because I think we've gotten to that point. They're, they're definitely going to be around. And the question is, are they actually at all a legitimate contender this year? Or are we just still lauding them praise for winning close games and being a little bit better than we anticipated? I think the latter makes sense. I'm going to call it lukewarm because I just... I just think it's right. Yeah. I just think it's I think it's factually accurate. I think it's dead on the money. And I also just don't see a world where, you know, outside of San Francisco landing Christian McCaffrey, I think that now just catapults them into the forefront of the NFC West. I don't think that necessarily interferes with anything the Giants have going in terms of wild card birth, I guess. Uh, I think they're totally fine there. Uh, they're getting relatively little competition right now is going to Green Bay and the New Orleans Saints because Tampa Bay is the team that probably needs to bounce back the most, but they're also playing in a division that is, you know, fun of scrappy, full of fun, scrappy guys. Uh, a team that is just really, really going through it and Orleans Saints. 
at their peak of their powers, maybe they give them a run from their money, but I feel like, especially after last night's loss, they've lost two close games that they probably should have won, and they dug themselves a bit too deep a hole uh, to get out of. It's still early, but with Tampa Bay playing this badly, I feel like they outpaced them. And this doesn't even mention Carolina not playing competitive football anymore. I'll chalk it up. A lukewarm take. I don't think the Giants are really going to get much competition in the wild card, at least not enough where they're going to miss any sort of potential playoff window. I mean... So this is a hot take. You're, like, staking your claim that the Giants are going to make the playoffs. That, I would say, is in the, like upper tier of lukewarm bordering on hot. Like, if you're taking the stance right now that this team with a negative DVOA is a playoff team, respect. Like, I I sort of... I'm, I'm 50-50. I don't for sure know that they're going to make the playoffs. The only... Th- the thing is, you, you brought it up. The competition for them to make the playoffs, very, very subpar right now. Even if both the Packers and Bucks bounce back from their 3-3 three and three records and kind of get back to where they are, and are what we expect them to be and assert themselves in the wild card picture. The Minnesota Vikings are also five and one with a negative DVOA and they play the Giants. So that could easily be another team that falls below the Giants. But this take is not staking its claim that the Giants are going to make the playoffs. This take is just saying, oh, they'll be there. Of course they're going to be there. The NFC is super weak and they already have five wins against maybe the tougher part of their schedule. They have a lot of easy games left on their schedule. Then maybe that's the take I post at the end of the show and stake my flag in. I just don't see... Tease it. I just don't see three additional teams emerging. Uh, You know, you can never count the Packers out when they have Aaron Rodgers, but there's enough of a headache uh, in terms of a lack of belief in offensive... That, uh, you know, a lack of receiving... I don't see that changing, really. Uh, I see Tampa Bay... Pretty easily bouncing back, I see. Uh, just because, you know, they've proven it. They, they've had some level of success passing the ball, and I don't get why. We'll get into, the, we'll get into Tampa Bay. Uh, but, yeah, outside of, you know, the Cowboys being your resurgence with Dak back, I just don't see a window where, you know, John should play the 14th schedule in terms of difficulty, according to our numbers. You know, I just don't see three teams jumping them when they've got a two-game lead, in most cases, on their next closest competitor. I mean, yeah, they, they could lose this Jacksonville game. They're, they're underdogs. I, I picked them to win the Jacksonville They're very much underdogs, uh, according to the betting lines. And then if Green Bay and Tampa get wins, all of a sudden it's one game. And... Dallas is right there, too. So I still think that is a hot take to say that the Giants are just going to make the playoffs. I'm 50-50 on that still. Now, of course, we get to that point in the segment where wouldn't it be fair for football outsiders to host a show just nitpicking and criticizing takes that putting up one of our own to scrutiny. This one comes from last week's host, writer for FO, Brian Knowles. How quickly the tides turn, Mr. Knowles. Listen, the seat vacates and the wolves get hungry. (laughs) Knowles wrote a fantastic piece on the NFL scoring drought, uh, one of 
the lowest scoring performances we've seen sometime down to 21.6 points per game, the lowest since 2009. And we've yet to hit a winter where scoring typically goes down when things get a little chilly out, speaking of our meter. Highly recommend you go read it. And as always, we've got the links to all podcasts, recordings, and sources that we use to fuel this show in the comments down below. Highly recommend you check them out. Highly recommend you check Brian's piece out. But basically, amongst all the data, in a cavalcade of different factors, uh, the aging of late great quarterbacks in Brady and Rodgers, a piling up of injuries specifically at an already thin league-wide left tackle position. Advancement of defensive strategy against modern McVeigh offense. Uh, some misfits in some veteran swapping. The end conclusion of this statement, more or less, and I apologize for Knowles for paraphrasing. The low scoring in 2022 is just caused by not enough truly great football. Outside of a couple, three, maybe four teams that have separated themselves from the pack, I'd personally identify them as Bills, Chiefs, and Eagles. There aren't enough truly great top-to-bottom football teams in the NFL that are producing to drive scoring. Where are you putting it on the meter, Jackson? This is going to be another one of those uh, hot take, good takes, uh, because I think this causes a bit of a stir just in terms of, you know, you think about it. Obviously, there's good football players, right? I mean, the the arc of progress in any professional sports league is towards better play, better players, more efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. But Brian does a great job in this article breaking it down. And I, I think the cleverest thing he does is we usually look at things through the lens of DVOA, right? defense-adjusted value over average. What Brian says is that's that's not good to normalize for defense when we're looking at offensive stats year in and year out. So let's peel it back and let's just go raw VOA, value over average, taking, you know, adjusting for this year's defense out of the play. And he reveals that passing is at a decade-long low watermark. Passing is at 22.6% in raw VOA, which means, yes, passing is still a much better option than rushing is in just terms of, you know, efficient football, but it's way off its normal pace right now, which to me says it's not just that we don't have good football teams, players, etc. It's that quarterbacking is way down. And I think some of that comes back to quarterbacking has never been easier to get competent play out of guys like Geno Smith, out of Marcus Mariota, out of Bailey Zappi, etc. Maybe that's watered down the state of quarterback play in the league a little bit to the point where there aren't great quarterbacks carrying their teams as much as there have been in the past. And that's kind of where I think Brian is getting. Maybe it doesn't go all the way there in the take, but I just think quarterback play is pretty lukewarm right now. Lukewarm is probably where I'm going with the, this one, but not for the reason I went with last. That's just, you know, that's a fact. This is a presentation of those facts. 
in a solid argument. I'm going lukewarm because I think there's just room for improvement. I just think, you know, we look at Brady's numbers. Offensively, down collectively in terms of the team's scoring. But Brady's still a good quarterback. He currently sits at fifth in DYAR and eighth in DOA. Again, I don't want to say too much on Brady because, spoiler alert, we got him coming in the next section. But We'll get there. We'll get there, exactly. But we've got, like, he's just a good example of guys who are playing decently well, but haven't had the ideal situation for scoring. You know, Russell Wilson, for as abysmally as his offense has sort of looked, is kind of barely sitting below negative DVOA, negative 7.4, which, not fantastic, and certainly on pace for the worst of his career, but there feels like there's room for upward trajectory. And also, it just doesn't feel like it's as bad as you'd think it is. The fact that 18 quarterbacks are performing above average DVOA, it, it just in the positive above zero, feels pretty telling to me that there are some opportunities for additional scoring that we just haven't hit yet. I agree that, you know, overly conservative play on the defensive side of the ball, the introduction of cover two uh, as a premier or a predominantly featured go-to defense to slow down quarterback play. It's not just you know, the weakness of uh, Patrick Mahomes or the weakness of uh, Josh Allen. Now every quarterback, or sorry, first quarterback to really have the cover two boogeyman sneak up on him, ruin some of his play. But now it's the weakness of every corner, uh, quarterback because now there's just additional. Uh, you really have to slow play and you have to overcome that because in his own, opportunities will open up over time. Uh, you'll eventually be able to find some sort of window to get stuff in. It's just a matter of things developing. If you can figure this out, if you can make the minor corrections mid-season, then stuff changes a bit. I, I am curious just to see, Brian points out this leveling off, this downturn of scoring in the winter months, when things get cold, when you know the ball starts to hit the ground, we start to run more. I, I just wonder if, with teams beginning to adapt and teams beginning to change, I wonder if, since defense is leading the primary charge in the first third of the season, if the offense, if there's now going to be an offensive counterpunch, which creates a leveling off instead of a downturn. It's just, you know, it's me spitballing at this point, more so than coming up with a take, but... I do wonder if that's a possibility because I feel like always it's offenses open up, defense adjusts, coupled with winter months, you get a downturn in scoring. If it's the other way where defenses are leading the charge, well, the offenses have somewhat of a counterpunch, 
We even saw it on Thursday night where, you know, that total eclipse is 70. I don't know how much we expected it to. New Orleans is missing their top two corners. Arizona's a pretty anemic defense. They also scored two of their points on defense, or two of their touchdowns on defense anyway. I wonder if there's any sort of counterpoint. Hey, I wonder too. But like you said, we're you're just spitballing. Let's let's see. Let rest of the season still ahead of us. That's why I'm calling it lukewarm. There's a little room on the wiggle for the meter. Let's dive in some fantasy takes. And this is what I was kind of saving up for. Let's kick it off with underdog fantasy. Sponsor show might as well. They do a nice little show over there called Stats versus Film, where they give takes on all 32 NFL teams, which valiant effort, valiant effort that they're given fantasy advice and fantasy takes for every situation across the NFL. They had a little take on old Tommy boy. Let's take a look. The dude's not open. He sees 35 with the back of his helmet to the quarterback. The ball is already released. There are safety coming underneath and a safety going over top. This is more or less triple coverage, and he threads it for a beautiful ball to Chris Godwin as a vertical player down the field. And then there are other ones, too, where it's like the wide receivers aren't necessarily creating separation, yet the throws are getting there. And this was a dot to Russell Gage in the end zone that he got his hands under. It looks like from this angle, it hits the ground. It's because it goes directly through Russell Gage's hands. Yeah. Like all of these throws. And then there was one later to Kate Otten, which how can this one, how can you trust yeah, 88? Did it. Oh, it's, a, it's very similar to this one. Yeah. How, how can you trust 88? Who's a rookie tied in for you? Who's not filling in for Robert Gronkowski 41 back of your helmet. This conceivably is not open. And then it's just a perfect pass. Tom Brady is not the issue for this team. And I continue with huge optimism for Tom Brady for the rest of the season. Again, I will keep bringing up. I know the offensive line talent has diminished because of injuries and because of players who have left, but this eerily reminds me of his first season in Tampa Bay where they took about half the year to get to their you know full throttle best offense and then they hit their stride to win the Super Bowl. Not saying they're going to do that, but with the NFC so wide open, yeah. if they just get good in weeks 14, 15, 16, and beyond, it's a bit late. But that can get to them as a huge, huge force once we reach the NFC playoffs. Tom Brady's not at fault. The golden boy is void of criticism. <laughs> Jackson put it on the meter. Hey, when you when you boil it down to that, if it's if the, the full take is just Tom Brady's not at fault. I I I'm I'm in between blazing and hot, and I'm just gonna go hot. Uh, but Tom Brady absolutely bears some fault for what's befallen Tampa this year. And you know what? Granted, some of the stats are still good. Some of the peripheral stats are still very good, um, especially in terms of our stats, DYAR, even DVOA, he's still top 10. But like, you also have to kind of trust what the box score is telling you sometimes. You have to trust... That Tom Brady's completion percentage is way down. You have to trust that his QBR is way down. Um, the offensive line also bears a fair amount of the blame here, as Tom Brady will definitely tell you. Um, he'll show cameras on national TV that the offense bears a lot of blame for this. 
Um, but like Tom Brady's 15th in QBR right now, you know, that would be unprecedented. Like there's, there's still gotta be some blame put on the guy and it's not like it's necessarily like unexpected. Tom Brady's 45 years, but like you, you watch this team play and there's a lot of just kind of out of sync with receivers. There's a lot of Brady getting the ball out so he doesn't take a sack. Um, he's, he's still good like there's nothing nothing to say that tom brady is like completely fallen off the cliff and can't play football anymore but does he share some blame for some of the losses they've gone through is he the same old tom brady that he has been his whole career and particularly the last couple years in tampa i I think it's okay to say that he's not so far jackson i hate to break to your you might be off on this you might be a little wrong Brady's got the fourth highest completion percentage of his career at the moment. 67.2, which is only outdone by the perfect 2007 season, last year in Tampa Bay, and the 2016 season in New England first for, for suspension. Again, early sample size, only six games under his belt. But he's been an accurate quarterback. He has been accurate. His completions were down in the Pittsburgh game. I shouldn't have said for the entire season. That was concerning to me that at one point in the Pittsburgh game, he was like 7 of 17. But in general, you're right. The completion percentage is still on par with his career average. Early on, he was kind of throwing balls at the dirt. And I think that is where some of it shows up, is that he's unable to truly zip those short to intermediate balls in there in only where a receiver can get it, uh, the crossing routes, the uh, over-the-middle stuff that Brady's become so well-known over here. But Josh has basically got the exact same take that I had with any given Sunday this week breaking this game down. Tampa Bay needs to lean more on Brady. He showed two of the highlights that I had in that document, that last uh, that last one to Kate Otten, it's one I had in there. Uh, you know, throwing forty one to the back of it. There, are, there are five quarterbacks. There are so few quarterbacks in the league that have the confidence not only in themselves but in their receivers to throw. And this, what's fascinating to me, is you talked about throwing out of sacks. This offensive line ranks twenty seventh in adjusted line yard, 29th in the stuff rate. Brady has the shortest time to throw in the league. And they have the third fewest sacks in. And that's just because Brady's pocket mobility is on another level. Uh, you go into stuff with Leonard Fournette, and he's been one of the worst running backs in football this year. If you look at the DVOA and DYAR numbers, of the guys who were qualifying, Leonard's 36 of 39 in DYAR and 34th of 39 in DVOA. It's a bad offensive line. It's a bad run game. And they're electing to run the ball way more than they should. I can agree with that. What's interesting is they're only they're 30th in the league in rushing rate on first down. They're 
thankfully not allowing Leonard Fournette to try and cook on first down. But he still is getting way too much opportunity. Uh, if you just boil down their offense in terms of DVOA numbers and take the the names and numbers out of it, uh, they are the seventh ranked passing DVOA offense and 30th ranked rushing offense, which to me says whatever percentage you're running and passing the ball at, the balance still needs to shift way more in the passing direction. Jackson, they did they did let Leonard Cook on first and <laughs> it was bad. Certainly against oh, Pittsburgh. I'll throw this yeah, again. This is game plan for Pittsburgh, which is its own fault because the Pittsburgh Steelers were starting their backup secondary for the <laughs> most part. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick out, Levi Wallace out, Akello Witherspoon out. All of these, all these guys were not there for Pittsburgh. And they open up eight of ten drives on first and ten, started with a run. One of those ten runs went for more than three yards. Four yards is what's deemed a successful run play on first and ten. Four, only four of those eight drives went for positive yards. It's just electing to shoot yourself in the foot. They had four three and outs, and every one of those four or three and out drives starts with a first and ten run attempt. You're just you're just shooting yourself in the foot by doing that. It's it's a play calling, and there's more. You know, there's further corrections in there. They've also dealt with injuries. You know, uh, Mike Evans getting suspended for a game doesn't help. Chris Godwin's been banged up. Julio Jones has been banged up. Russell Gage has really been a few guys that I played all six games. It's it's not on him. Moving on. Got a bit of a fantasy personnel take as well, leaving the quarterback position, moving over to running backs. This one's a little bit more weekly situational. We got the Fantasy Pros football podcast. Fantasy Pros, obviously, one of the central hubs for fantasy data. Got the guys over there calling Washington running back Brian Robinson a top 20 back, a top, sorry, we are one of the guys over Fantasy Pros Football Podcast calling Brian Robinson a top 20 running back option heading into this week. Let's take a listen. And so for, to cap off the trifecta here, and this is the the riskiest guy that I'm going to bring up right here. Mm-hmm. It's Brian Robinson, and I have him as a top 24 running back, and a lot of this just goes to the matchup. Um, I'm probably going to end up bumping him. Uh, yeah, he. Uh, I just refreshed my ranks. He is RB20 right now. And this does come with some risk, people. I get this. Because Brian Robinson did not run any routes. He did not get any targets last time. But what did we see? Almost 20 carries, 60 yards on the ground. We know you can run on the Packers. So if the commanders want to stay in this game, they're probably going to feed Brian Robinson. And the other thing about this is, it's his third game back. We could see him a little more involved in the passing game this week. And yes, he could get game scripted out. But the other side of this is, what if he scores an early touchdown and the commanders get up? Because the Packers have sucked over the last few weeks. Defense has been volatile. You can run on this team. Right now, Green Bay is 27th in rushing yards allowed. They are 31st in explosive run rate. So even though Brian Robinson is not like, you know, the type of back we look at, okay, can he hit a home run? Okay, I'm not asking him to break off a 50-yarder. 
Can he get like one for 20 and get into the end zone? Yes. If that happens, he's a top 24 back. Brian Robinson, top 20 back in fantasy. Jackson. This week, this week, week. I'm in. I'm, I'm in on it this week. The Green Bay defense, 32nd in rush DVOA. The Green Bay defense tied for 24th in rushing touchdowns allowed. Maybe this isn't a take to say Brian Robinson is, you know, a great running back, a guy that you want to build an offense around. But this week against this Green Bay defense, yeah, I think I like Brian Robinson a lot. Actually, I mean, personal anecdote, I have four guys on by this week, including Dalvin Cook and Miles Sanders. So Brian Robinson, come on down. You're starting for Team Jackson this week. You better perform, pal. My issue, only caveats I'm going to throw. This Washington offensive line is bad. It they is. They are 29th in adjusted line yards. Uh, they are 31st in second level yards. And they're 21st in open field yards. Uh, you know, I almost lean. I almost think they might lean on Heineke. It might just be me. Saying they're going to lean on Brian Robinson to beat the Packers could be a hot take in itself. Perhaps. I'm going, I'm going a little cold here. I'm going cold, firm cold, actually. I just don't think he's the guy. And then additionally, you know, I get they've got their problems with Antonio Gibson. Uh, you know, you got Jared McCain coming back. I you're just in the full at least. You know, it's a crowded backfield. I get they're going to try and lean on Brian Robinson. Just a little too rich for my blood. Top twenty, maybe top twenty upside, but confirmed top twenty is a little rich for me. First of all, when the Eagles, Vikings, and Bills are all on by, it gets hard to find twenty top running backs. So in that sense, it's a bit of a lukewarm take in that. There's not a ton of talent at the position this week, and it's been a weird year for running backs in fantasy in general. So top 20, maybe not the hottest take. Um, will they lean on Brian Robinson to beat the Packers? I don't think they're going to beat the Packers anyway, so maybe not. But I think I think Brian Robinson gets in the end zone this week. Um, I don't think the presence of whether J.D. McKissick is there or not actually matters. Antonio Gibson is actually pretty good and looked pretty good last week, but they've shown a clear preference for Robinson to get him the touches, especially in the actual ground and pound game. And I think that in goal to go situations, they're definitely just going to give him the ball and see if it works. So from a fantasy perspective, those are all good things. Well, Unlike you, I picked Washington to beat Green Bay in the FO Staff Picks article this week. I did, and I picked it mostly because I think they're going to lean on Heineke, and I think they got a great uh, receiving trio in there, along with Logan Thomas. Starting to appear a little bit more healthy on on the injury list. I just, you know, I think Brian Robinson's an asset. I don't think he's going to be the breadwinner this week. But speaking of those picks, Jackson, we're going to the picks of our own. We're getting into the pick segment of the podcast. Let's kick it off with the Action Network. Action Network podcast co-host who only goes by Stucky, to uh, to my knowledge, ended up picking Jacksonville minus three, and went real sour on the New York Giants. We already had a bit of Giants talk early in the podcast, but let's get Stucky's take on the matter. So they have five one-possession wins on the year over the Bears, Panthers, 
Titans, Packers, and Ravens. They were tied or trailed in the fourth quarter in all five. And the fourth quarter, they're outscoring teams 45 to 10 if you remove the intentional safety they took. So I just getting every break is going their way late in games. Daniel Jones also hasn't thrown his picks yet, even though he's thrown a bunch of turnover worthy throws under pressure. And here's what the Jags are going to do. The Jags run D I love this year, and they are sixth in success rate against the run. They can shut down this Giants rushing attack. What's it going to be from there? It's going to be Jones under pressure. He's under pressure on 46% of his dropbacks. I think it's the third highest in the NFL. He hasn't thrown his picks yet. He only has, he has two touchdowns and no interceptions, um, but they're coming. And then on the other side, Jacksonville, I mean, this is this is the time to buy them. They're coming off three straight losses. They lost by eight in Philly in a monsoon, which they lost the turnover battle 5 nothing. They lost at home to the Texans, despite one of the most, the biggest discrepancy box scores that you'll see. I think they outgained it by 250 yards. And then last week, they have a last-second loss against Indianapolis, a brutal loss. Trevor Lawrence became the first quarterback in NFL history to lose a game with 20-plus pass attempts, a 90%-plus completion percentage, three-plus touchdowns, and no interceptions. 103 years of football has never happened. The quarterback plays that well, and they lose. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is the time to buy the Jags. This Giants team is feisty. They're well-coached, but teams are starting to get some – Film on what the Giants want to do with their run game with Daniel Jones. Got to give a lot of credit to Dable. But last week, I mean, they, what did they average? 2.7 yards per carry. And the Ravens are not a great run defense. And uh, so, yeah, I think the Jags will be ready here after three straight losses. Giants have been arguably the luckiest team in the NFL. I think the luck runs out here. I'm taking the Jags minus three. Jackson, the luckiest team in the NFL has their luck run out. In week seven, put it on the meter. Oh, man. I think it's actually not that hot a take. I think it's a lukewarm take because all the data that we have says that the Jaguars have underperformed what their record should be versus what the peripherals say, and the Giants have overperformed, and it's in Jacksonville. Things tend to regress to the mean. I get it. But I actually think the Giants are going to win this game still. Um, and I think that because I think we've started to get to the point, and this was my staff picks uh, pick as well for this week, so I'll put myself out there uh, and say that I think the Giants are going to win. But that is because I think we've gotten to the point in the season where teams get used to winning and teams get used to losing. And I think this three-game losing streak for the Jags, especially the Indy loss where they just blew it, Whereas the Giants have such good vibes right now. I mean, we've talked about, we've talked at length, Kale. Vibes matter. Vibes matter as much as any stats. Um, and I think they're so good for the Giants right now and so bad for the Jags after, you know, the two and one record, the blowouts, and taking a 14 point lead on the Eagles. A lot of things have gone south since then. I haven't trusted the way Trevor Lawrence has played the last two weeks. I know that some of the tape looked better than some of the actual numbers, and maybe that's a whole other can of worms where his receivers aren't doing as well, not getting as open. But, man, I, I just think that the Giants have figured out how to win close games, and I worry that the Jags have already started to get used to losing them. You know, losing cultures are one thing. Uh, getting used to losing is another. I don't think any team really wants to lose. 
I will side with you though. I think it's I'd go as far as to say it's cold bordering on freezing. It is it is an icy take in the sense that I just I think there's a level of pessimism in this description. Earlier on he mentions, you know, the only loss that this Giants team has had is to Cooper Cup, which should count as two losses. And, you know, boiling a lot of these one loss or or, uh, one score victories down to these, you know, just over trivializing them. They've beaten, you know, two good quarterbacks in Rodgers and Lamar. They've schemed this team really well. And Brian Dable is just a creative mind offensively, is just doing a lot with a little. Is really making the most out of, you know, getting getting balls to a wide receiver five, a wide receiver six, considering how few guys they've had on board. Uh, I think George Pickens is is encroaching on Kenny Galladay's career receptions total at this point, which is crazy to think. Yeah, that's a. I think he's within ten at this point, which is a full year's worth of difference considering how little they've gotten out of him. They've not gotten a lot out of the players that they thought they'd have the most of. And Brian Dables, you know, he's getting into 32 personnel with zero wide receivers on the field to make the most of it. He's doing a lot of creative stuff. I get the performance hasn't lived up to expectations. They're a 5-1 team with negative DVOA. There's no way around that. I just, I don't love the explanation and explaining away like the really long drives that the Giants have set up to ice teams out, or you know, creating these turnovers in crucial moments, playing you know, good third down. It it contradicts a lot of what we were talking about with like the Giants just hanging around. I think they are hanging around for a reason. I think you know, they're not the best football team, but I think like coaching competition, it's not just the luck. It's not just the luck. I think there's reason and motive behind it. And I think it's a reason why the Giants at least covered this weekend. Yeah, let's give Wink Martindale some credit, too. That was the one other thing I wanted to say when you were getting into all that was you create these two late turnovers against Baltimore. I I know that Wink Martindale's overall style is a little bit all or nothing, but I think that's exactly the style that beats Trevor Lawrence, a man who became the first to fumble four times in a game in the 21st century a couple weeks ago. Uh, If you're going to set out to create turnovers against the Jags, I think you're going to find that to be fairly successful more often than not. So I, I still maintain that I like the Giants here. Last one for us today. This one comes from Green Light with Chris Long. His co-host, Macon, ends up 3-0 in week six, you know, for giving hat tips to right takes. Shout out to him for going 3-0. And his pick of the week this week, in their little uh, their little pool of games. His first pick that he takes off the board. Cleveland plus six and a half against the Baltimore Ravens. The Cleveland Browns getting six and a half points in Baltimore. Boy, do I hate that. Really? We're not usually on the same – or we're not usually on opposite Yeah, that side. makes me feel bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, chunt against a porous run defense. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, porous run defense, but I really do feel like they get it going again. I think this is a big, like, get-back game for Lamar, but I'm not giving that out. Six, Steve, go 6. ahead. 6.5 points. That's though. a lot of points. But a lot it's, of points. It, but everybody's saying that, right? Everybody's looking at that number and but saying. But it's, it's a bit of a zag because the Pats just 
beat the brakes off them. Yeah, you're 15. right. You're right. I'm not thinking about that. Okay. They got zappied. Okay. After getting zappied in week six, the Browns <laughs> cover plus six and a half against the Baltimore Ravens. Jackson, put it on the meter. Spicy, man. Um, yeah, I'm going, I'm going blazing and I'm going, this is a wrong take. Like, I just think that we've reached the point in the season where the Browns can run for as many yards as they want and it's not going to necessarily matter. I mean, they should have won that Chargers game and they couldn't even pull that off. Now they're facing a quarterback who has owned them historically, Lamar Jackson on a four game winning streak against the Baltimore against the Browns. It is a necessary win for the Ravens. They, they've they lost three games in which they've trailed for a grand total of two minutes. It just seems like something needs to regress to the mean for them. And at the end of the day, you know, the Ravens are a great rushing team too. And it's Jacoby Brissett against Lamar Jackson. Give me Lamar Jackson, and I feel like I'm on the right side of it, even if it ends up being wrong. Listen, I'm calling it hot, and I'm calling it right. Mm. If only because top five rushing offense against the 24th rushing defense by DVOA. Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, dynamic duo over there, leaning on them. Bit of a bounce back for Cleveland. I think it happens. I don't know. Uh, Baltimore, I think they at least cover. I think Baltimore walks away with a win. They've had too many things go Wrong for them between the Bills one score loss, the Giants one score loss, the Dolphins one score loss. Something's got to break their way at this point. I think they cover a close one. I got the Ravens winning this game, and I sort of feel like there's some pent-up frustration there, which is why I like them to cover the spread. Well, I mean, they might give up some rushing yards. That, that seems like a foregone conclusion to me. You want to have Mark Andrews out there at 100%. I get that. He's been questionable all week, not practicing. But I just think I I, I keep coming back to Lamar versus Jacoby Brissett. And to me, this is a a spot where the Ravens have to win, and I think they show no mercy. I think that exact same argument is why they just put the ball in Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt's hands. You know, just the big mismatch in terms of their – Offensive strengths, defensive weaknesses. I think that's where they at least keep it close. If they run up the score, then they can't really rely on that anymore, but so be it. That'll do it for the Week 7 edition of The Takeaway. Jackson, as always, we close out. We leave ourselves a nice minute or two to put ourselves out there. We can't be the arbiter of takes without giving the people some fodder. Jackson, as your first time on the show, do you got anything to get off your chest? You know what? I'm not shying into this one, folks. I'm not gonna give you a I'm not gonna give you a lukewarm and claim it's a spicy. I'm I'm really gonna do this. Um this makes my stomach absolutely churn. But we did a little thought exercise this week on Football Outsiders as a staff, and we said of all the teams that are Two and four are worse. So basically that means of all the teams that have losing records right now, who is most likely to make the playoffs? I will reiterate, I will stand on the table and say the Las Vegas Raiders are more likely to make the playoffs than the Arizona Cardinals, than the Denver Broncos, than the Jags, and all in between. Do I have very solid statistical backing for this? In terms of DVOA stats, no, I do not. 
but the Raiders are still up there in terms of the Dave projections, a.k.a. preseason, what we thought combined with this year. They're still the 16th ranked team. So despite the fact that they have underperformed and underwhelmed, they're still a talented football team. They should have beaten the Chiefs. That was a bad loss in terms of them making the playoffs because they needed that game and they outplayed the Chiefs for the most part. But you've got an offense with Devontae Adams still doing Devontae Adams things. Josh Jacobs averaging the highest yards per carry of his career by far. It's an actually efficient Josh Jacobs, and that's a scary thought. The Raiders only play, I think, four more teams with winning records, and two of them are in their division. And the other two are the Titans and Colts, which don't scare me at all. I think this is a soft schedule for a team that can get right against the Texans this week and fight their way back to 500. Jackson, I don't think anything would be more blazing than my pick of the Detroit Lions. That is way more blazing. Way more blazing. But I do like I like where your head's at. The connection's got to come together at some point between Derek Carr and Devontae Adams. Defense hasn't been as bad as it's been in years past. You know, I really like the duo of Max Crosby and Chandler Jones. I think the uh, additional acquisition of Rocky Sin has paid dividends this offseason. I think I was uh, vital to them having any chance this year. And I don't hate the take. Uh, what I do hate is picking an AFC team just because that conference is already so stacked. It feels like any team with a losing record just has an uphill battle to make the playoffs. But when you look at it, there's a lot of three and threes in the AFC. There's a lot of Ravens, Bengals. I, I, the Chargers are four and two, but by all, they should be three and three. Uh, and the Colts and Titans each only have three wins, despite both being over 500. So we're still early enough that the Raiders win this game this week, get to their second win. Somebody's got to lose that Tennessee Indy game, so they'll still be at three. I think there's a lot like. It looks worse than it is because they're only a game or a game and a half back of most of the teams they need to surpass. Yeah, but we've already you know, kind of penciled in the Patriots for the playoffs in, <laughs> in a loose pencil. Uh, I think two teams in the AFC North get in. Uh, if the Chargers keep sticking around and don't win their division, they get it. You know, something's got to give at some point the slots fill up. But of all those candidates that have 500 or subpar records, at least subpar uh, sub-500 records, I like the pick of Vegas. I think I'm just going to stick with mine from earlier in the show and just say Giants make the wild card. I think that is, that is enough spice, enough heat in there to carry me the rest of the way. And we already kind of got it. Do you have any th- additional thoughts on it? I think we've talked enough. Too, too much G-Men for the show. Too much G-Men. I'm not as sold on it as you are, but I think it is a close to a coin toss for me, and if I had to pick heads or tails, I guess I would pick the Giants make the playoffs. But I'm not, I'm not willing to stand on the table for that one. Well, there you have it. Just as we have done for most of this show, now you can take our picks and nitpick them and throw your own stats at them. And you can tear us apart in the comments if you want. Or you can agree with us and get on our bandwagon. That's why we do this show. We love talking takes. But that's been the takeaway. Jackson, thank you for joining me. We'll be doing this a lot more. I'm very excited about it. For Jackson, I'm Kale. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.